My name is Christian Ashley, a seminary student and servant of God, and you are listening to the Let Nothing Move You podcast, a proud Anazal Ministries podcast. Welcome back, everyone, to the next episode of the Let Nothing Move You podcast. I'm your host, Christian Ashley. We'll be going into the book of Luke, chapter 22 today. But before we get there, I do want to apologize for the audio quality of the last episode. Uh, that wasn't Joshua's fault. That was more Zoom's fault. And what I mean by that is that I don't use Zoom to record, but I had to use Zoom over the summer for all of the... Uh, Uh, meetings I had to have with my professors. We'd meet once a week, but every single time that happened, Zoom would like parasitically control my settings and change my volume. And I had gotten it to the point where I think I was doing fairly well in that regard, but I don't understand audio stuff, all that jazz. So when it did it, I didn't recognize it until after the fact, but like listening to the last episode, like I apologize. Uh, Once again, it's not Josh's fault in that regard. There's very little that could have been done. I, uh, It was hard for me to focus on what I was saying, so I can only imagine how bad it was for all of you. So just putting it out there, my apologies. It's how it goes. Bad things happen. We'll move on. And that's what we're going to do today by going into Luke 22, starting with uh, verses 1 and 2. Now the Feast of Unleavened Bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. This is supposed to be a time of celebration, of looking to God and thanking him for bringing the Jewish people out of slavery in Egypt and rescuing them in the midst of the plagues uh, that were atta- that attacked the Egyptian people to allow them the opportunity to get out of slavery and have a land of their own. And this is what it is twisted and turned into. This rejection of the very one who gave them the opportunity to do this as he is in the flesh right in front of them. Like we've seen, the Pharisees have had ample time before this moment to do some serious self-reflection and to repent of their pride. But instead, what do we see? They doubled down and plotted to murder Jesus. But unknown to them and good for all of us, who have come to know who Jesus is, their sin was always a part of God's plan as he used their iniquities to engineer a situation where the entire world could have the hope of finding salvation. Look, there are plenty of evil men and women out there in the world who think they're defying God's will by not following after him, only for them to find out that they were actually enacting it and will one day be punished for their defiance on God's time. The Pharisees if we're being charitable, which would be a huge stretch here, we're, would possibly think, oh, well, this is a blasphemer and it is written in the law. We have to get rid of those and this is better for everyone. Now, sure, if we're being charitable, sure. But we know why. They had denied God and loved themselves instead. And this was going to be the end result. But do, like, in this moment, understand this is ultimately good. For the sake of the world, God uses evil people who think that they're enforcing their will on the world and they're going to make it in their image. And at the end of the day, God is going to use it to show the world who's actually in charge. I mean, look at what's happened all over history. 
We have, I mean, if you want to go Godwin's law, look at Hitler and the Nazis and their persecution of the Jewish people. What did that do at the end of the day? Uh, Millions of Jewish people were murdered, but God used that to bring Israel back home as a nation. That is astounding. We think of what evil people do all over history. I mean, that's just one specific example. There are plenty of others, but you get the point I'm trying to make. God will let evil people for a time reign because they are going to be doing what he wants to do anyways, whether they realize it or not. Not that they he is actively working with them like, oh, I approve of what you're doing. Don't get me wrong there. But because their actions are going to lead to the glorification of God, even though that is definitely not why they do what they do. And the Pharisees, more than anyone right here, are really going to regret that. Uh, Verses 3 through 6. Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and, and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. A couple things here. Satan, as I interpret this text, didn't literally enter and possess Judas. Because some people would like to say this, because in their minds, if this is true, then, oh, that just removes Judas's guilt from his actions. Like he was controlled by someone else. He was possessed. It's not his fault. No, that's not how this works. Instead, the language that is used here defines what's happening inside of Judas's heart, where he is aligning himself with Satan by selling out Jesus. Whether he is actively aware of that or not, doesn't matter. By acting to these evil ends, he and the Pharisees are on the same satanic side. And ultimately, we see this is used for good, but their motivations are so wrong. And his motivations, however, we do need a little study for this. Like, they're a bit of a mystery. Like, we get in John, we see that he is a very greedy person. Like, he abuses the funds because he's in charge of the money for the disciples. And Jesus knows it's the whole time. And he uses uses uh, uses it to test Judas. But also, we don't really get too much on his side of like specifically why he is doing this thing. Why is he betraying Jesus? Now, there's a couple of things we can say in that some people think it's because he wanted Jesus to reign as a king on earth and to destroy the Romans. And he finally realized after listening to what Jesus had to say, he wasn't going to do that. So some people, some scholars say he grew spiteful and sold him out. And that's a perfectly reasonable assumption to make. Uh, I don't know if I buy it completely, but that's one way. Uh, others say that he saw the resistance that they received from the Pharisees and jumped to a different team to come out on top. The way I see Judas, I kind of see that a little more. Like I'm not, I'm not willing to take a bullet for any of these, but I'm doing my due diligence, I hope, to present these to you. Like, why would you, Judas do what he does? This one makes sense to me because he goes, oh, well, uh, there was resistance in the past, but like not to the point where they're actively trying to murder this man. So what if I just join up on this team, sell him out and come out on top? That makes sense to me. Others will say that uh, our uh, Gnostic enemies would say in the Gnostic Gospels that they have they have the absolute gall to say that he and Jesus were in on the plan for Judas to, quote-unquote, betray him so that Jesus could die on the cross. 
<laughs> that's not how this works. It, it, it goes into more Gnostic philosophies of why certain things happen. Um, if you look, read into the Gnostic Gospels, they're a hoot. Uh, I recommend doing it as a sense of, okay, what have past heresies done in the past? Uh, he said, using the same word twice. And then seeing where we got from there and how we fight against bad uh, theology like that, that's useful. But it makes no sense. If that were true, we would have gotten it from these books. And even then, it doesn't make any sense because Jesus wouldn't want to let one of his own take the fall. He's the one supposed to be taking the fall, not them. He is the one who's supposed to be dying. And in order to do this, Judas has to sin by selling out his master and being bribed in order to do it. That's not how Jesus functions. He's not going to let that happen. But at the end of the day, like regardless of Judas's motivations, he proved that he never understood who Jesus was, and he decided to continue to live in sin. This man had spent a little over three years with Jesus and had never once truly met him. Plenty of people can do the same within the walls of our churches. Like I've been harping on it for the past couple of chapters, but I mean it. I'm trying to let us just be aware that this is a possibility and not to once again go, we're not supposed to go on a witch hunt here and start try, <laughs> putting people on trial because then we would really be missing the point of what's going on here in these chapters. But to make us aware of this as an issue so that these people don't get into power and affect the way the churches run and what we do. We don't need a Judas in the church. We don't need a Joel Osteen in the church. Both of these people, uh, yeah, I'm calling them out, uh, are very terrible for the image of the church. You know why? Because people look at them and go, oh, well, they were in the church. Well, if, I mean, if that's what people like there, why should I do it? And the church already has a bad of enough image without us making it worse. Let's be vigilant. Let's make sure the people in charge are, are doing their jobs because they truly love Jesus and seek after him. Judas, Jesus allowed him in his presence knowing that this would happen. But he never, after this, then said, Judas, you're going to be a leader of the church because Judas will not show repentance. We'll get there when we get there. Next up, verses 7 through 13. Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. They said to him, where will, we, where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters, and tell the master of the house, The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished, prepare it there. And they went and found it, just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. So, Earlier in Luke, we saw the disciples being sent out to find a cult, and this being a very small, I don't think I focused on it, I probably should have. This was a small focus uh, on their willingness to listen to what Jesus had to say and to test their faith. Likewise, here we see the exact same thing, although this is a little more uh, larger in scale, maybe, than finding a cult. Like, this very idea was ludicrous. In this case, like they were expecting something more than the simple farm animals. Like, sure, we'll find one person who will let us take this animal. I mean, sure, that's possible. But to find a house and, and being complete and utter strangers and say, oh, you know that Jesus guy has been talking? He's supposed to be taking this house, by the way, this guest room. 
for our own purposes for dinner. And then that person's going to say yes. And not only that, this would be a man gathering water from a well. Well, if you know your history, I mean, if you look at John as well, you'll see typically women were the ones who did this. So the fact that it's a man was astounding to them because that helped them narrow down their search, which means Jesus knew what was going to happen before it happened. I mean, there could have been plenty of men walking around if the cultural roles were reversed, but it wasn't. It was just a specific guy Jesus knew was going to be there who would allow them to come into his house and celebrate the Passover together. This was a test of their faith, a smaller one at that, but still a test nonetheless. And Peter and John passed. Can we like cheer them on for a bit? I know we like to harp on them every now and then. It's like, oh, those idiot disciples, they should have known who Jesus was and they weren't listening to him. But they pass smaller tests sometimes. And that's something to be not rewarded, but to be praised. And the same thing is true of us. God gives us small things every day. He says, do this. Christian, do this. Do this. Love that person. Listen to what they're saying. You know, get up this morning and have a positive attitude about how you're going to be doing my work. Those are small things, but they add up over time. Trust him. Learn from their example. Okay, verses 14 through 23. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled within the kingdom of God. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes, uh, excuse me, for the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this. Here we see in his final moments with his disciples, his most treasured friends he spent over three years with, before the coming of his death, Jesus takes the time to speak with them frankly and lovingly. In the Gospel of John, we see several chapters worth of what he has to say, but Luke and the other Gospels choose to give far fewer bits of his words. When we get to John forever from now, we'll go into more depth. But the purpose of these verses is to show us, even though it's condensed, Jesus deeply cared for them by giving them an example of how to handle the stress of what was to come for him and what was to come after this for them, the stress they would have to endure. Because right now he knows what's going to happen, and we'll get to that later on too in this chapter. And yet he takes the time to look after them, knowing what's about to happen to him. I mean... None of us know for sure we're going to die tomorrow, but he did. And he used his last moments on this earth, these last couple of hours, to look after his family. Also here, we see the birth of communion as a concept. 
Now, this is a hotly debated issue about how we're supposed to do it. Uh, I mean, over the ages. And at the end of the day, we'll get there. It's a holy ritual, okay? This is something we are supposed to do. This is something Jesus commands us to do. So the point is we are supposed to be doing it, but then how are we supposed to do it becomes the question. And it's a very valuable question. I've been in churches where communion was done every Sunday, and I've been in churches where it's like, oh, man, we haven't done communion in like you know six months or something. We should probably do that, right? Like, I don't know what the healthy balance is. Like, I've heard arguments on all sides of like, we should do it every Sunday because, you know, it's a precious thing. And I've heard arguments on the other side saying like, look, it makes it more special not to do it every time. Uh, I don't know if I ever end up, you know, pastoring a church, if that's why I'm here at seminary. Like, I know for sure, at the very least, I would like to do it once a month, probably twice a month. I could be persuaded to either side. The point being, communion is something we are supposed to do. It is important. You know why it's important? Because Jesus places importance upon it. So if he says something is important, if he says to do something, I need to do it. So let's get into a brief overview of some of the different views of what is happening in communion. Let's start with the Catholic Church, that of course being one of the, the first organized churches that came into the Christian world. And we see a very literal interpretation of Jesus mentioning the wine and bread as actually being Jesus's body and blood. Like the term used there is transubstantiation, wherein we have this belief that the blood and body of Christ are present within the communion and bread wine, literally. This is not, okay, hear me? This is not cannibalism and should never be spread around as such by anyone with a brain. There's a fine difference between being present and it actually being us devouring the flesh of our God, <laughs> which has been an accusation thrown against the Catholic Church, especially by uh, Protestants who don't know better. And uh, it's their own church's fault for not teaching them well. And plenty of other denominations outside of the Protestant uh, realm of Christianity, too. Like, this is not cannibalism. Don't listen to someone who says that they do engage in cannibalism because of their more literal interpretation of what Jesus commands here. Like, look, to them, we believe some kooky stuff. To us, they believe some kooky stuff. Does it affect their salvation? No, would be my argument. Now, it weirds me out, don't get me wrong, but to interpret it in that fashion, but that doesn't make them any less legitimate than me when it comes to serving Christ. And that's something we need to figure out more often. Sure, we can argue about it all day. I'm never going to be able to say, I literally think this is the bread. Uh, the bread is the body and the wine is the blood or the grape juice or what have you. But I can have a conversation with someone about that. Let's move on to the more Lutheran approach, which is in essence called consubstantiation. And they believe uh, the body and blood of Christ are not literally there, but metaphysically in the sense of being in the bread and wine, uh, in their words, to be in, with, and under the forms. Uh, there's one illustration I saw. I, it kind of makes sense to me. It's not the best that I saw, but it helped me understand a little better. This is uh, in the same sense that a sponge can have water inside of it. The body and blood would be contained within the bread and wine. It's not a perfect analogy, mind you, but it gives enough of a sense to help us figure out what's going on when they say in, with, and under the forms. 
But once again, it's more of a, a spiritual presence being there. Um, and then we have, uh, to make things more confusing, we have the more Anglican view of matters, which is there is a real presence of Christ held within the bread and wine. What is the difference? There's a lot of metaphysics physics going on here. I'm not your guy for that. I'm merely introducing the concepts. If you really want to go out there and you want to understand it better than me, who has read up on this stuff and I've gone cross-eyed, have at it. I encourage you. If there's something you ever go and Christian said this, but he didn't go as in-depth as I wanted, look into it. Just look into it. Then we have kind of the final, not really the final option, but more of a spiritual good option, we'll say, out of these four. Uh, as in, like, these are all good ideas to have at some point in time, coming from a point of this is not heresies for these four concepts. And there, there are plenty of other heresies out there, and we don't really need to go in depth on them because they're wacky. <laughs> but uh, as far as I'm concerned, I go with, surprisingly enough for a Baptist, and I know this is incredibly crazy, but the less literal interpretation as a Baptist <laughs> in that symbolically Christ is present within the taking of communion. Now, when I'm taking communion at church, he is there in a um, in a symbolic sense. He does not have to physically be there. He doesn't have to be present within the bread and the wine or the bread and the grape juice. I know there's so many people who are upset about that. Like, look, they drink wine. That's how it goes. You know why they drink wine? And I've heard a lot of people use this against the idea of said, oh, that's just what they did back in the day because of the health conditions. Like, no, it was wine. Don't say anything else. Don't translate it as grape juice. It's infuriating. The idea of why they would use wine is because it was a healthier option compared to the water where there could be inborn diseases. And you know what wine does? It prevents a lot of bacteria and viruses from growing with, within it in the same way that water does not. So they drank a lot of wine because it was safer for them to do so. Then I hear a lot of especially my Baptists go, well, well, that's what they did then, if they admit that they drank wine at all. <laughs> and they don't try to translate wine as grape juice. It's like, oh, well, they, that's what they did then. And we don't have to do that now. Like, sure, we don't have to do it now. But don't diss on them for living in a different time. Just because you have something against wine. Me, I despise the taste of alcohol. I think I've spoken about that before. I may have not. But point being, I don't like it. But I don't have a moral objection to it. I mean, if it weren't for the fact that I'm in a seminary right now where I signed a contract where for the next four years that I'm going to be here, hopefully just that long and not even longer because that would be a lot more money. I, I signed something where I cannot drink alcohol at all while I'm here. So if I was to go to a church, uh, let's say I went to a friend of mine is an Anglican pastor. And if I went to his church, there is a there is not a grape juice option there like there was when I went to Pastor Will Rose's church. Those of you who are fans of Systematic Ecology and the whole church podcast, he's one of our uh, co-hosts there. And as frequent get uh, cannot speak today, guest on whole church, they had a wine option and a grape juice option. And I didn't have to make that call of I'm not going to take communion at all. Because I signed this contract, I want to live up to the words that I said I would do. So I was very grateful for that. All that to say, look, communion's weird. <laughs> I mean that, uh, uh, not, not in a tongue-in-cheek fashion. It is weird. Like, you bring it up to someone in conversation, like, it's easy to misinterpret it. 
it, it's a weird thing, but yet Jesus commands us to do it. And it is a holy and perfect thing to do as a church, as followers of Christ. And once again, I'm not going into all the different heresies that go up there. It's We don't have time for that. This is a long chapter, and I've already wasted enough time. Now, finally, at the end of this passage, whew, sorry, I'm going to be talking for a while here. I'll just keep it in, Joshua. I don't care. Uh, we see that the disciples are confused. <laughs> I praised them earlier. Now I have to chastise them. They're wondering which one of them could possibly betray Jesus. The moment that accusations get thrown around uh, in situations like this, whenever paranoia breeds and causes discord and strife. Even though these men had known each other for a little over three years, they still didn't know each other fully. If they had, they would have noticed the signs within Judas that made him betray Jesus. Like, these men were friends. Like, from what we can tell, we get very little of their actual interactions with each other uh, outside of when Jesus is speaking with them. But we see, like, they must have liked each other enough to stay together on the road for over three years. There was some bond there that had formed, but not enough of one for them to see the wolf in their fold. Like, look... It's, I bring up that point about accusations, breeding paranoia and discord and strife and all that mess, because that's what it does. We need to have a healthy, if there is such a thing, a, a healthy paranoia that is looking at, okay, what is this person's motivations? Are they who they say they are? Are they really looking out for Christ? Are they really living for Christ? Or are they using the church for something else? If there is such a thing as a healthy paranoia, and I say that as someone who by his very nature is very paranoid, and that's something I've had to wrestle with my entire life, because I'm also a very unobservant person, so mixing that with paranoia is a very bad uh, bit of alchemy there, of whatever heck uh, that's supposed to end up as, it's, it's bad. Let's put it that way. But if there is such a thing, we need to use it for the good of the church and the good of the people around us. So we don't end up with the Judas in our midst. 24 through 30. A dispute. <laughs> Five seconds after an argument. I'm sorry. Uh, a dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and leader as one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you, as my father assigned to me, a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in the kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel." I laughed at the start of this because it's so human to bicker and complain and throw accusations around the moment an accusation is thrown out and the disciples just fall straight into it. And like, we're no better. <laughs> I mean, look at the church. We're no better. And like at this moment, instead of realizing their weaknesses, these numbskulls instead talk about which of them is greater than the others. <laughs> 
I mean, like this is more than likely out of a desire, like to show that because of what they'd done, then they couldn't possibly be the one to betray Jesus. It was like, oh well, I, I brought this this many people to faith, and I cast out this many demons, and and uh, Jesus has talked to me more than you, so therefore I'm better than you. So I couldn't possibly be the person to betray him. And all that is, it's not even humble bragging because oh, it's overt bragging. It's just us. And the disciples saying, look at me, look at me, look at me. What about you? I know what I'm doing for Jesus. Look at me. Oh, I'm so great. I'm doing all this work for him. Mm, I don't know about you. I don't hear you talking about what you're doing. It's blustering. It's not helpful. So what does Jesus do? As he often does. He lovingly and in a correcting fashion as a good teacher, Jesus rebukes them and shows them that in his kingdom, None of them will be greater than the others, because all who are in Christ are equals. We have all equally been saved from our sins by him and have nothing to offer him except our obedience. Nothing. I'm not qualified because I'm smarter than a lot of people out there. There are people that are far smarter than me. That doesn't make me less than them. It doesn't make someone who's never opened up a Bible in their life but still knows who Jesus is. Any, any better or worse than me. It's all in the heart. We are equals in the fashion that we have been saved from ourselves. We haven't earned that. Like Nothing we've done has ever come close to accomplishing the same thing Jesus will do on the cross for all of us. And let's look at this. Like I, I'll be open and honest with you. Humility is something that I struggle with a lot. Like, even at times when it sounds like I'm being humble with my words and actions, like I can very easily enter a mode of false humility where I pretend to not want people talking about me and what I've done, but all the while I'm just relishing inwardly in their praise. That's not good either. This is just as bad as openly boasting about how great I am. Like true humility is something that must be learned if we want to follow Christ well. There is a very fine line between talking about the great things that Jesus is doing through us and talking in a way that downplays Jesus and upholds us instead. Whether that be through boasting or false humility, whatever, doesn't matter. Learn the differences between the two and then make him the one who receives the glory at the end of the day. It is good for me to say, Jesus told me to talk to this person and I had a great conversation with them that maybe they came to faith, maybe they didn't. But Jesus told me to do it and I did it. You know why? Because it encourages people to do the same. If I then make that about myself, I'm missing the point of why Jesus sent me out there. The point wasn't for Christian Ashley, to be, his name to be made great. The point was Jesus said, go do this, go talk to that person. And his name was supposed to be made great because he was the only person who could save that person, not Christian Ashley. Not you, not anyone else, only God. However, in the midst of all this, also see how Jesus will one day reward the disciples who will eventually be faithful to him. Rather than the faithless Pharisees, he will appoint them to be the ones as judges over all Israel, not only after his resurrection, but once they have died and gone to heaven. There are rewards in eternity for following Jesus but these rewards are not why we do what we do. They're just perks. I, I, I like to joke with some people. It's like, man, you're the reason why I'm going to have an extra uh, jewel on my, one of my crowns in heaven. 
that's going to be great. Like Jesus is going to give us crowns, but we also see we're going to lay those crowns down. Like there's some authority we're going to be given up there. And that's more than what we have here. I don't pretend to understand it all. It's going to be something, a reward for faithful service. That's not why I do what I do. I do what I do. I follow God as I follow God because of who he is and what he's done for me and what I will never be able to amount to without him. If we have a goal-based Christian walk, we're just living a self-defeating life because it defies the point of God's commands to do what we do in order to love God and love our neighbor as ourselves. If I'm out there because I want that extra special jewel of my crown in heaven, one of my five crowns, I'm not loving my neighbor as myself and I'm not loving and respecting God. Don't fall in those traps. Be better. You're worth more than that. 31 through 34. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. <laughs> Remember that, by the way. Uh, Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. So let's look first at what is a possible literal interpretation of what Jesus is saying here. And in fact, it's the one I kind of take. Uh, for those of you familiar with the book of Job, we do see that there's a bit of this uh, divine counsel of sorts where uh, Satan or Hasatan, the accuser, the adversary, is there to speak out against Job. And I do believe Satan and Hasatan are one and the same. And uh, what Satan is doing in the book of Job is he's trying to say, look, God, the only reason Job does what he does, the only reason he praises your name is because you keep rewarding him. And of course he does that because he's living in peace and safety. But if you take everything away from him, like he'll fall and he'll curse your name. So God allows Satan. And we'll, when we get to Job, we'll go into all the uh, specifics of that. But that's not the point of what I'm trying to say here now. And Job does not. Satan, if we take this literally, which I tend to do, is attempting to do the same to Peter. But unlike Job, Jesus refused him. In this instance, you know, we'll see that Peter falls for a bit here. Jesus refused to let Peter be taken in the same way that Job was right here and now. Instead, he prayed on Peter's behalf. It's again, despite knowing that in just a few hours, he's going to be denying him not once, not twice, but three times. Like, this is how we should pray for those around us. In that same fashion, because at some point, even though we love them, even though we give our all to them sometimes, they are going to let us down, just as we will let them down with our own sins at some point in time. Don't let this grow into resentment and anger. Learn from Jesus here. He could have easily said, Peter's going to deny me three times, and he would have been justified in saying, you're gone, you're out. But because Jesus is merciful, he looked after Peter and he prayed for him. Instead, let us take his example there and pray for our friends and family, knowing that one day they will act against us. But then we need to not hold that against them forever because we too need to be forgiven and loved in the same way that they do. Not in a forgiven, get, forgive and forget sense. That's not biblical. That's not healthy. But with the goal of reaching reconciliation, because guess what? We're going to do it to them later on too. 
because we're human. There was only one perfect man and he got murdered for it. And we'll get to that eventually. So when you are praying for others, know you're praying for them because you love them. You want to see them do well, but also pray that when they do hurt you and it's when they hurt you and then when we hurt them, that we seek reconciliation, that we seek to love one another. We're going to see Jesus forgive Peter later on, but he didn't pretend that Peter never sinned against him either. Find that balance there and love people well. Love like Jesus did. Jesus corrected, and that's part of loving. He also didn't hold it over Peter's head for the rest of his life. He forgave him. 35 through 38. And he said to them, When I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said, Nothing. He said to them, But now let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack. And let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. And they said, look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. Now, there's a couple of ways to interpret this. But first, let's look back. Remember, Jesus did send his disciples on a journey. And he expressly told them, take nothing with you. No swords, no money, no nothing. You're to rely on the people that you're going to be ministering to. That was a test of their faith. And from what we see, it looks like everyone passed, like apparently even Judas at some point in time passed this test from what we see. Here we see the exact opposite. Jesus wanted them at that specific point in time earlier to bring nothing with them. Now that he is about to be gone from this mortal coil, he encourages them to instead arm themselves and have ample money to aid them on their journeys. You know why? Because that's very practical advice that stands even in today's times. Jesus, okay, let's also see what Jesus isn't saying here. Jesus isn't encouraging his disciples to be gung-ho about their new mission works and to brandish their swords just to show people they're armed. He's not saying, hey, just open carry, guys. He's saying his intent's to have them be protected both physically and financially. Well, how do you protect yourself physically from bandits on the road? You have a sword. You have a gun. You know what? You know why? Because you can use it to defend yourself and the people around you. That's good practical advice. Why did you just tell him to bring money this time? Because if you need to pay for something, well, guess what? Oh, I have money in order to do that. There is something to be said about trusting God and doing other things. You know, say, oh, God will provide, God will provide. But there's also something to say, God will provide even when I already have something with me. And it's even better. Don't. Don't take this false sense of, well, if I just throw everything away and just head out into ministry, God is going to give me everything I need. Like he could, but it's a lot shrewder. It's a lot smarter to bring something with you to defend yourself, to bring something with you to pay for your bills, to not be a burden on someone else financially. And we see like Jesus never spoke against self-defense. And in fact, we'll see in this chapter, he only rebukes Peter later on for his brashness and trying to enforce Peter's will on the world rather than it being an act of true self-defense because Jesus needed to be taken away so he would die on the cross. Like that, There's a lesson that we can take from this regarding the act of self-defense, and it is intended by Jesus' words, but the more important lesson to take is that the world we live in is hostile to the gospel. Christians need to use everything at their disposal to lovingly live with our neighbors knowing that there will be times, especially overseas, where we must act to protect others in ways some might find harsh living in the easier-going Western world. There, I said it. 
look, uh, there are missionaries out there that are strapped when they're overseas. You know why? Because they're better protected that way. Sure. The uh, self-defense, good thing. But once again, don't forget the point, the main point that self-defense is a minor point Jesus is making here. And that we need to be prepared for the situations we're going to be in. If I were to go in that situation, guess what? I'm taking every class I have to. I'm arming myself as I have to. I'm going to be as financially stable as possible so that I have to worry about nothing and I can focus on doing God's work. You know why? Because that's smarter. It's shrewder. It's practical. That's what Jesus is trying to say here. Be practical when he tells you to go into ministry somewhere. And guess what? We all have a ministry somewhere. So wherever that is, find the ways to be practical about it. Also, uh, don't lose sight of the fact that Jesus points his disciples to Scripture, showing that what is about to happen must occur, as God has allowed his prophets to speak of it so that his glory could be further enhanced by predicting events far in the past that speak of the then present. Jesus came to his end at that moment willingly, although, as we'll see in a second, not without concerns. And I'm glad we get to see that. So we'll move on to 39 through 46. And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw. So that means they can still hear him. <laughs> Remember that. And knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. In the midst of one of the most agonizing parts of his life, what do we see Jesus do? We see him being concerned for his friends, his most trusted friends and the disciples. His warnings about them not falling into temptation has been and continues to be some of the most practical uh, advice that we've ever received. All of us are going to have to deal with some temptation at some point in time. Temptation itself, like we've said before, is not a sin, but giving into it is, which is what Jesus is warning against. These jokers can't even stay awake, knowing he's upset, hearing the words that he's saying out of his lips, and they can't be there for him. Let's focus on Jesus here. He rightfully, uh, uh, very rightfully so, I will say, is afraid uh, and concerned about the pain and torture that he's about to endure. You know why? Because it's going to hurt. <laughs> I, no other passage in Scripture, in my opinion, like showcases his human nature coupled with his divine nature better than verses like these. Uh, outside of his weeping for the death of his beloved friend Lazarus. I think that's one of the other good ones, or really great ones. Like, people like to demean Jesus' sacrifice here by saying that if he knew that, that ultimately he would come back to life, then he really wasn't making a sacrifice at all. I normally, when confronted with people who say this, it's happened a couple of times, I normally ask them, okay, sure, you have the same guarantees. Are you going to do it? So far, not a single one of them has said yes. Uh, and typically, 
these are going to be atheist agnostics or someone of a different religion. I've every now and then you'll get a Christian who will say yes, and uh, I say more power to him because <laughs> uh, in my heart of hearts I know I probably would say yes at the end of the day, but man, uh, I'd be mm, I'd be in a worse state than Jesus. I think if I had to ultimately make that decision in the same way he was, and I'm glad he's never going to make me do that, but we should take heart in that fact that there is a desire in our hearts that if we were placed in that same situation, would we do it? Well, I'm not going to be the one. I mean, you can argue theologically and philosophically, well, I can never take everyone's sins, but the point of the argument being, would we do it? Look, what Jesus was about to endure was going to be pure agony. This is why he prays to God to ask him for any other way out of this situation, even though he knows he's not going to get what he's asking for. But in the end, Jesus submits to God and does what must be done for the sake of all who would call on his name to repent of their sins. That is good news. (laughs) That is immensely good news because I don't deserve that. I don't deserve God coming in the form of a man while keeping his divinity to die on my behalf, but he does it anyways. And furthermore, let's look at this, this verse. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus asks God for help, but he doesn't seek to do something against his own will. It is examples like uh, passages like this for why I do my my best to end my prayers with similar words. Uh, true prayer, honest prayer, should come from the heart, and we should ask and not demand from God the desires of our hearts. However, we should always be humble enough to say these same words, because at the end of the day, God's will supersedes our own, and we must submit to that. I suck at praying. It is one of the, I'm in my personal spiritual disciplines class. By the time you hear this, I'll be done. But it has been made very apparent to me by what I've had to write, what I've had to read, that I, and I knew this already, but it's another thing to like have it be brought front and center to my attention, that I suck at praying. I suck at remembering, uh, you know, someone says, hey, Christian, like uh, my mother's in the hospital or, you know, mom. My little sister is suffering from this. Can you pray for? And I'll say in that moment, like, absolutely. Yes, I'll do that. And I mean those words. But I go back home and I forget I ever said it. Like, I don't intend to do that. I don't want to forget those things, but I do. And some of that's, you know, my terrible memory. Some of it's I need to just find a way to be a better planner, uh, learn to write things down and to ask people questions. And sometimes I'm actually good. I actually do it. But most of the time I don't. Because I just forget. And it's so infuriating. But what I've had to train myself to say is what I, you know, I typically say at the end of this podcast. Like, I ask that God bless you all in accordance to his will and not mine. You know why? Because his will is the only one that matters. And if I want to love you all, I need to say that. So I'm not saying you have to change your prayers, change words you have to say at the end of it. But that's something that's been very helpful to me, is forcing myself at the end, not my will be done, but yours, or some variation of that, because it shows my heart and my heart of hearts, what I want to happen is what he wants to happen. 
let's look at Jesus again here, physically. He is in physical, spiritual, emotional agony, and that manifests itself physically through the medical condition known as hematidrosis, which is when blood sweats out of the body thanks to the sufferer enduring immense stress. I can think of no better time in history for someone to be so stressed uh, to the point that blood pours out of their body instead of sweat. Um, if this is to be taken literally, perhaps as some scholars say, this was merely metaphorical. I don't particularly see it that way, but I definitely see why they would think it. Cause I mean, that's quite the picture. Uh, I think especially since this is Luke as a physician himself, like he would no doubt know of, of this condition. They probably wouldn't have had, I don't think the term comes from the Greek, but it was created, I think, just a couple hundred years ago, if I remember correctly, from my research. But he would have known of the idea of this happening. So, and he chose to relay that information to us, assuming that this is literal, just to help us understand how much Jesus was suffering before his promised end and resurrection. That tells me how much God loves me. Because like I said earlier, I have a hard time. I know I would say yes at the end. <laughs> I would be kicking and screaming, and I would have said far worse things than what Jesus says here in his prayers. But he did that for us. All that agony manifesting physically through sweats of blood. That shows me how much he loves. And finally, for this part of the passage, we see the disciples failing him in his hour of most need. Like, look, he wasn't expecting them to fight back and protect him, but he was at least hoping that they would remain with him and provide comfort in his stress and, stress and grief. Like, it, wouldn't you expect your friends to do that with you? They see, oh, man, Christian's sweating some blood there. Something must be going on. Uh, we should probably talk to him. Yeah, probably a good indicator. But we need to do the same for those around us. Ask yourselves how you can be better at noticing someone else's emotional and mental state and then ask how you can help them. I am learning how to be better at this. I've said it before on the show. I don't understand people's emotions that easily. It is something, it is an acquired skill that uh, much sweat and blood uh, uh, has been had to have happened to reach the point where I'm at to where I can be better than where I was years ago. But that takes work, and that's righteous work to undertake because we're not the only people who matter here. Ask yourselves, do they need someone to talk to without offering them advice? And I point my, <laughs> I point every finger I have at myself because I want to fix things. That's in my nature. I want things to work well. I want someone to be happy. I want them not to be concerned, not to worry. And that's not always what they need. Sometimes someone is going to take you aside and they're not going to want advice. They just want to talk to you. And while that may be infuriating, guess who's in the deeper need? It's not going to be you. It's going to be the person that needs to say what they need to say. Learn how to listen and not give advice unless asked to. I've had to learn to say openly, hey, is this something where you want me to give you advice or is it something where I just need to listen? It, that's if I'm being thoughtful about it and <laughs> I'm not hundred percent successful. Also, uh, is, is there some way that you can help them? I, I don't know, by maybe watching their kids while they make a big decision elsewhere or to make sure that 
you know, you're checking their mail or what have you, something to make sure that they know this is secure because they can trust you to do it. Well, they're wrestling with whatever it is. We're finding a new job or uh, finding a new home. They have to move somewhere else. Like they know that you are capable enough to watch over this for them so they don't have to worry about that so they can focus on something even bigger. Can you do that for them? Find out what you are capable of doing and then act on it. Sometimes you may learn, I'm not the person fit to do this. You know what that means? Don't be the person to do it unless there's no other option. Find someone who can. Find someone who is trustworthy and can take care of that scenario. We are not meant to live this life alone, and I thank God for that, despite my very intense misanthropic feelings and tendencies towards humanity. (laughs) Because we were never meant to shoulder our burdens alone. We can give these to Jesus, and we can continue to help each other with our burdens by watching out for one another. That is a beautiful thing. That is something that can only truly be found within the people of God. 47 through 53. While he was still speaking, there came a crowd, and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And before they even get an answer, and one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. And Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who had come out against him, have you come out as as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. Ah, I got to get the final word. Man, to make it so good, Jesus. I love it. Let's start with Jesus and Judas here. At this time in history, it was considered a mark of honor for a disciple to kiss his master on the cheek. It's a form of respect. It's showing I am learning under you, and I want people to know that you are the reason why I'm able to do what I'm doing. Judas takes this heartfelt cultural idea, and he twists it to betray Jesus. We also see here... A disciple, and John reveals it to be Peter, uh, misuse Jesus's words from earlier to try and prevent something that is not his moment to intervene in. He takes his rage not on the armed soldiers, but a defenseless servant who can't fight back. Our hero, people. Peter's rage at Jesus being betrayed is natural and could have been used for good. He allows it to blind him instead while also acting in a cowardly fashion to abuse his right to defend the people he loves. We have a right to defend people. Don't abuse it. Be aware of yourself. Be aware of that situation, when and where to act. Peter acted incorrectly here. So what does Jesus do? He rebukes him for failing to defend others correctly and heals the servant. Sure, Jesus could have stopped there and he would have been righteous enough to do so, but he went the extra mile, healed the servant who had done no wrong. Just being there because it was his job. He wasn't there because he hated Jesus more than likely. He was there because he had to. Servants don't get to say where where they go. Were these people of reason, the people trying to arrest Jesus, they would have fallen on their knees then and there without having to be forced to, as we see in other Gospels and worshipped him as Lord for working a miracle. Hey, if you ever walked up to someone who lopped up 
someone else's ear uh, with a sword and then another guy you're trying to arrest comes in, reattaches the ear as a miracle? I haven't seen that. That would tell me, oh, something strange is going on here because you don't see that happening. But they're so lost that they double down even further and they arrest Jesus. And he gets the last word here, rebuking them far harsher than he does to Peter for acting cowardly in a, uh, just to come after him in the dead of night because they're afraid of the people's love for Jesus so that they have to conduct an illegal trial in secret and find a way to spin it for their own ends. We'll get to the illegal part of that in a bit. 54 through 62. Then they seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. And Peter was following at a distance. And when they had rekindled, excuse me, kindled the fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, This man also was with him. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And a little while later, someone else saw him and said, You are also one of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, Certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. We learn in other Gospels this is because Peter had a Galilean accent. <laughs> 60. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to, them, to him, Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. This is a rough one, a real rough one. Peter here has multiple opportunities to speak truth and own up to his love and devotion to Jesus. He's not on some spy mission or rescue mission where it might be useful to perplex and misdirect those who ask him questions. We can get to the legality of what it means to you know, lie for a good cause. Is there actually such a thing? Can you ever lie uh, and it not be sin? That's a different conversation. I'm so glad I had my Christian ethics class this semester over the summer. That was really fun. Uh, but that's not what he's there for. He's there on a fool's errand to once again enforce his vision for how things should go, rather than listen to what Jesus had said must happen as he had predicted his death several times before. Jesus wants Peter as king. Jesus wants the authority that comes with being a follower of Jesus without understanding the reasons why Jesus is here and what he is saying. And he denies Jesus three times and ends up in immense sorrow that could have been avoided if he just listened to the man he said he respected and loved. Jesus breaks him down with one look, but this doesn't seem to be a look of disappointment. This doesn't seem to be a look of disgust or hatred. From what we can tell in Scripture, this looks like a look of love and mercy. And Peter can't take it because he knows he doesn't deserve it, and he runs away. Most scholars out there will say Jesus was looking on him not out of judgment, but of love. But this isn't the end for Peter. Even though, I mean, you could really argue righteously, Jesus could have just watched washed his hands of him and moved on with his life. Because, I mean, how worse does it get than denying that the man you lived with for over three years is someone you associate with? 
And this man is also the son of God. Pretty bad. But that's not where Peter stays. Jesus doesn't let him remain in his rebellion. Later on, we will see Jesus forgive his beloved disciple and give him a new purpose. We have all failed God before countless times, but he knows this and loves us anyways, giving us the hope and love to come back to him and rededicate ourselves to his service. Thank God for that, (laughs) because this is why I am not God. I would have given up on me forever ago. You know why? Because every single day I do something out of rebellion. No matter, even when I have things going right for the most part, there's something I do, something I think of that I dwell in and I reject them in that moment. I'll repent, sure. I'll even pray and say, God, forgive me. And God accepts that and God wants that from me. But I sometimes it feels like I'm the most worthless follower in the world. And I know everyone has felt that at some point in time, but that's not where Jesus wants us to stay. Look, Peter denied Jesus three times, but Jesus still had a purpose and plan for him. If he could do that for Peter, imagine what he can do for us. If that doesn't embolden your spirit, like I don't know what else to tell you. <laughs> because that does even cheer me up. My my black and icy cold stone heart. Like that makes it start to beat again. And I'm so very grateful for that. Because once again, I'm so glad he's God and I'm not. 63 through 65. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. So we see these men were kind of more uh, like temple guards and they weren't the Jewish leaders and priests. We'll get to what they do later on. (laughs) which arguably is much worse. Like they had probably just heard stories of Jesus, maybe had never met him before. And so they mocked him based on what information they have about his claiming to be the son of God. Now, ironically, Jesus is about to be put on trial for blasphemy while he himself is being blasphemed before his trial even starts. And it gets worse from there. Like if anyone needed to be brought up on charges, that not only would have been the Sanhedrin we're about to see, but also these men. We're mocking the very God who created them in this moment. Does that not like break anyone else's heart that they just don't understand what they're doing? It's awful. And yet Jesus died for these very same people. We don't know where they went. Maybe they came to faith. Maybe they didn't. Either way, Jesus died for them, taking their abuse so that they had a chance to repent of their sins and find salvation. And we'll finish off today in verses 66 through 71. Told you this would be a long one. When day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council, and they said, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe, and if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, You say that I am. Then they said, what further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from from his own lips. So a couple of things real quick. Uh, Luke, unlike the other gospel accounts, chooses to combine the two meetings held and goes into less detail than the others. Like this is part of him just condensing things. He's getting to the parts that, in his opinion, probably really matter. I get that from a writing point of view. I wish we'd get more because I'm always a fan when it comes to stuff like this. 
of getting more in depth into motivations behind what people do and other miracles that Jesus did and uh, why he did what he did. Like I'm all for that, but Luke chooses not to. And that's okay. Guess what? We have three other gospels to go to. And that's a good thing. We may even have a fifth gospel out there in the Q document, whatever it is. But unfortunately it just didn't just survive the test of time, but it was probably very useful for the first century Christians who were able to read it. If it existed at all, his purpose, Luke's purpose is to condense what was said, uh, what was said and when, because the end result is the same. The Jewish leaders had decided that to die, and they did so illegally just to get what they desired. Now, why am I saying that these trials were illegal? There's a couple reasons. We're not going to all of them, but an overview of this idea. So remember the fact that Jesus was taken the night before the Sabbath day. Now, what is so special about the Sabbath day? Well, I'm so glad you asked. We're not supposed to work then. And you know what a trial is? Oh, well, imagine that. A trial would be work. So by the very laws that they're attempting to, in their own minds, defend about not working on the Sabbath, they mysteriously used the opportunity to remove a thorn in their side the day before and even in the evening when they're supposed to be resting. So they decide to forget about this and judge Jesus going against their own laws and going against the law of God that they added rules onto just to get rid of a threat. Also recall, they were convening at the high priest's house, as Luke mentions here in these verses. And goodness gracious. And sorry, uh, I remember if these verses, sorry, let me get my facts straight real quick. Uh, they went to, I think it's another gospel. Sorry, I put the wrong thing down there. So they're at the high priest's house, uh, which is, by the way, not a court of law. Funny how that works. And they decide to make a mob judgment, a kangaroo court here, rather than what they were supposed to do. You know why? Because that would have taken time. That would have ra uh, given time for the people to maybe rally behind Jesus. Maybe Jesus would have gotten a really great public defender. Who knows? Not us, because they chose to do it in these illicit means. And don't get me wrong, I'm glad they did it this way, because it reveals their heart, and it gets Jesus to where he needs to be, which is the cross, so he can die for us. But any person with any amount of legal understanding would declare this a mistrial immediately, because he has no one defending him. They bring in people that were bribed. Like, they're using Judas's testimony... Based on a bribe, who, by the way, if he has to speak in this moment, he has to self-incriminate himself by working with someone who they said was a blasphemer. So why isn't Judas on trial? Oh, well, uh, we decided not to. Well, if you look a little further into it, oh, well, Judas got paid. But they don't want that coming out. They don't want uh, their witness, their star witness, as it were, if Judas was present at this trial at all. They probably just used his testimony from earlier and... He was just doing his own thing, but they don't want that thrown out of court, which it would have been done in a good court. And like I said, they brought these false witnesses there to say, oh, Jesus said he was going to tear down the temple himself, which is a deliberate uh, misunderstanding, a chosen misunderstanding of his words about how he had to fall one day because that was the, the price the Jewish people had to pay for their rebellion once again. And they're glad that should be the only thing that was done. 
there's also something here that needs to be said, um, that their charge against Jesus was blasphemy, which means they should have stoned Jesus to death. And there's a misconception that they didn't have the power and authority to do so. At But if you'll read later on in Acts, they do do this to someone else, that being Stephen, the first martyr. So how could they do it for him and not Jesus? Well, you would think some people bring the idea of like, well, they couldn't execute someone because the Romans had to do it, but that wasn't true. Uh, the Romans had given them, in certain cases, the ability to execute people. And blasphemy would be one, because guess what? The Romans didn't care about monotheists arguing about how their god worked. They were weird for doing that. The Romans had plenty of gods that they worshipped. Like the Romans, what they did was they would conquer a place, say, oh, wow, your god's pretty cool. We're going to add him to our pantheon. You know why? Because it helped ingratiate them to the people they just conquered. It's like, oh, yeah, we conquered you, but like, hey, we understand you as well religiously, and we're all religious people. So that's how it worked. But like the, the Jewish people were like the outliers. Where else are you going to find monotheists so uh, vehement about not worshiping other gods? So this is something they did allow the Jews to do because they saw them as weird. <laughs> and they didn't want to have to deal with it. And as long as it didn't cause any problems or rebellions, uh, why should they care? But we see who does care about what people think are the leaders, the Jewish leaders. Because they feared their own people that much that they preferred to have the the Romans sully their hands instead because it could cause a potential rebellion against the Romans instead of the Sanhedrin, instead of the Sadducees and Pharisees. Because if the Romans were the ones to kill Jesus, well, I mean, that's just how it goes. Well, we tried our best, guys, and he's gone. Oh, no. But if the Sanhedrin are the ones who killed Jesus... He has, they don't know how many followers. Like, there was no census around saying, hey, you're a follower of Jesus yet? They don't know. There could be a large enough army to cause a problem that would bring Rome in after the Jewish people uh, leaders were probably dead because they weren't able to defend themselves. So let's just let the Romans do it instead. Because, oh, well, if we truly believed in what we were doing, we would, we would stone you. Because we think you are a heretic. Uh, instead of, oh, we know you're not, and I'm just going to let these things happen. So instead, what they do is we'll see in Luke 23, they change their charge against Jesus to treason against Rome so that Pilate will have a reason to order his execution because if they had brought up blasphemy charges, like I said earlier, what does Pilate care? What does Rome care about that? You're already weird for believing in only one God. You're lucky we don't get rid of everything you own here. So. Why are you bothering us with this? This was an illegal trial meant to get rid of the biggest threat against their power. And it's going to backfire immensely. Let's look at Jesus finally here. Some people have said, oh, well, Jesus never said that he was God. He just allowed other people to say it. But Jesus is using their own words here against them. He is the son of God. He is the son of David. That's what he is claiming by the words that he is saying here. He's not shying away from the answer. He wants them to condemn themselves by refusing to listen to him. He doesn't need to defend himself because that defeats the purpose of what he's attempting to do here. He, he wants to die. So the plan to save the world from itself can work. If he defends himself well, which we know he can do, we've seen him debate other people before, 
it's possible there may have been a change of heart in some of these people. I don't think there ultimately would have been, but the chance is there. So he removes that chance by not defending himself. And they're so mired in their own pride and sin that they don't even realize they're being played like a fiddle. So when Jesus calls them out for saying that they say that he's the son of God, they've fallen into his trap that exposes their foolishness and at the same time ends up saving the world and those who call upon Jesus's name in faith and repent. All because they tried to get rid of someone they knew would replace them. That's it for Luke 23. Excuse me, 22. <laughs> we'll get to Luke 23 next time. Whew, that was a big one. Over an hour. Hope you all enjoyed that. Uh, there's a lot. I also had to cut too. <laughs> so you can see how long we went. I had more. I, I know you know I, that I had more. So I'm grateful for you all for sticking with me on this one. This was a really fun one to do. Um, getting into the crucifixion and the, the trial leading up to that and the disciples and their mess and not listening to what Jesus had to say and Peter lopping off people's ears. <laughs> this is just classy stuff. And I'm so grateful that you uh, decided to come along with me for it. So uh, please do, if you have a chance, just leave us a five-star review on your podcasting platform of choice, wherever you're hearing us. That'll help just boost us in ratings and find more people. If you're interested in my fiction writing, you can find my works at starvingwritersguild.com or on Amazon by searching for the name MC Ashley. If you're all interested in some further solid studies into the Bible and its teachings, then check out the other members of the Anazal Ministries Podcasting Network. Contact me at letnothingmoveypodcast at gmail.com. I'd like to extend a special thank you to Joshua Knoll for the editing that he does and for the music that he adds to the podcast. And with all that in mind, God bless you all in accordance to his will and not mine. And allow me one more time to remind you, let nothing move you. <laughs>